Hello, I'm Jay Goodwin, and you're listening to Pay It Forward. Today on Pay It Forward, we have Jonathan Franklin. Jonathan is a digital multimedia journalist at WUSA TV in Washington, D.C., where he develops ideas, writes, shoots, and edits stories for uh, both digital and on-air platforms. He is an award-winning journalist with demonstrated talents in the field of digital and broadcast journalism. Uh, outside of journalism and communications, he's had experience working in higher and secondary education, consulting, and nonprofit organizations. He's got a master's in journalism from Georgetown University, along with a bachelor in arts uh, in English, humanities, and African-American studies from Wofford College. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. Um, so first of all, like, what's, what's going on with you today? How's your day been going so far? Uh, it's been pretty good. It's been a um, fairly quiet and slow news day, which is good. Um, typically people in the news industry will say that, you know, oh, if it's a quiet day, or well, usually they don't like to say the Q word, um, <laughs> the Q being quiet, because I mean, if you say it, then something bad is going to happen. Um, but now that I'm not working, uh, it's been a fairly quiet day. Um, typically, like, you know, quiet days are something that's like, you know, not a lot of things are happening in the news world, nothing, you know, too crazy, just no, like, you know, five shootings and, you know, five different things going on. So it's, you know, just a typical everyday news cycle in comparison to, like I said, the hectic, you know, we were just in coronavirus and then we had all the demonstrations and protests around the country. So that was just a lot to just take in. So I'm kind of glad for it to settle down. Yeah. And I'm finally easing back to my normal schedule that I had before coronavirus and before, you know, the last 10, 11 days of protesting. Yeah, so what is that normal schedule? Is it like, are, are days for you normally, um, you said, you mentioned quiet and slow. So are days normally like the opposite of that? Are they super hectic and just like bouncing all over the place? Uh, it depends. So I so I work Monday through Friday um, and I work 11 a.m. to around 7.30. So that's kind of what people call the swing shift. Okay. Um, so I kind of dabble with a little bit of stuff that's in like day side. So typically there's three, well, I guess you count, four different news cycles in news there's like the early morning there's day side which is like your day side it's the shows that air like the four or five and six o'clock news and then sometimes mm -hmm. seven but seven is like prime time um you have your night side which is like the 10 11 o'clock news and you have your overnight and you have your morning which is you know 4 a.m 5 a.m 6 a.m shows so okay. i work technically for the 7 p.m show which is called q a um, it's designed to have like a question, like you said, Q&A question answer format, uh, where people submit questions and we answer them and we still do, you know, storytelling and still like present news, but it's a creative, and I guess you kind of say millennial way to tell the news yeah. um, for the 7 p.m. audience. Yeah. So um, I work the 11 to 7.30, which is like I said, the, the swing shift. Um, and it's a very interesting schedule. So before I've worked all types of shifts in news. So I... <laughs> first started out like my first job uh well actually my internship i worked um at the cw affiliate in dc and they only had a 10 p.m show so okay. it was called dcw 50 news at 10 and it was only 10 p.m um so i i interned maybe like three three four days out the week and typically the hours would be like one 
p.m. to 10.30. And I was like, oh, this is what I get to sleep in. I like, you know, this is great. You know, <laughs> Bet, all right. And then my first actual, like, legit, I guess you call it big boy jobs in news, I um, worked night side. So I typically worked Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from 2 to 10 p.m. And I had Thursdays and Fridays off. So I was like, okay, that's not bad. You know, Thursday, Friday, you know, I still have, like, some part of the weekend. And then Saturdays and Sundays, I work 3 to 11.30. So I was like, well, I mean, I can do something. But, uh, so that was my first actual schedule. And I worked day side. I worked like a 9 to 5.30, Tuesday through Friday. And I had to work Saturday morning, take the 4, had Sunday, Monday off. I've worked 5 a.m. to 1. I've worked 3 to 11.30. So I've worked all different, like any type of shift. Yeah. Except overnight. So any type of shift that has happened, I've done it. And I've only done overnights maybe a couple times when we had like severe weather coverage, but then I like literally work every shift in the news business. And that's, yeah. I guess people can't say they've done that, but I can say that's like a, I guess a fun fact, but it's simply not fun because <laughs> of your body cycle. Yeah. Well, the news never stops. So. No, I mean, true. So would you say that you have a favorite uh, shift to work? And uh, as a follow-up, like, are there how much control do you get over that? Do you get to choose your shifts? Is it sort of on a rolling basis where everybody kind of shifts around and takes different shifts or how does that work? Um, so typically my, so first my favorite, my favorite shift I would have to say, um, I guess it's a shift I'm working now because I get to, you know, obviously before everything was closed down, mm -hmm. I got to, you know, sleep in a little bit. I got to miss traffic. I um so I was rolling to work at eleven o'clock. People are like, why are you why do you work at eleven? I'm just like, I mean the news. Because I, yeah, I do. Yeah. And then I got off at seven thirty, so it was still you know I still miss majority of the you know going home traffic or you know the drive time traffic. Right. And it was still early enough so I can go out and I can go to happy hour, go to dinner, I can catch up with friends, you know, do whatever. Um, in comparison to where I worked three to eleven thirty at my last job. Like, I got to sleep in, I got to run errands, but by the time I got off, it's like, you know, what's there? There's nothing good that's open at 11.30. Yeah. When I do Thursday, I mean, <laughs> Friday nights, people will already be like, oh, it's a little pregame, and like, all right, cool, them just slide in, all right, boom, catch up with y'all. But it's like, you know, nothing good is open after 11.30. You know, yeah. Like, like, nothing good happens, nothing gets open, but McDonald's in <laughs> cookout. Yeah, from the pretty much. That's it. And I don't know if I'm, if I'm just an old spirit, but like, Pre-gaming at 11.30 sounds awful. I feel like right. <laughs> it's so late. But I feel like here, people, like here in D.C., things close at like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you're just now rolling out someplace at like 10 or 11. Yeah, fair enough. So, so that would work back when I actually would party. But now it's kind of like, oh, uh, like my favorite shift would be that shift. Um, and then your follow-up question, uh, I don't know, that's... So it depends. So when my first job, it was kind of like, oh, seniority, you would have to, you know, you know, you kind of have to work your way up. Right. Uh, and it's, so that's why I've worked, you know, I had to basically bust my ass to get, you know, off one weekend day on my second shift. And then I had to bust my ass some more and then got off weekends completely, but I worked night side. I was like, okay, I'd rather get off weekends and just work nights versus having to work both weekend days and work nights is my pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was like, you know what, like, you know, you, you know, you have to be more intentional with your prayers. I wasn't intentional with that. I was like, Lord, I really want weekends off. He's like, I give you weekends off, but you didn't say you wanted day side. So I, <laughs> so I was like, you know what, I'll take it. Um, my second job, it was more so 
the role that I applied for or like the role that I have was designed for that show. So it's like, you know, I have to work those hours because it will give me enough time to set up and do everything in the slot before the show airs. Right. That way, and then I stay for the duration, obviously the show's from like 7 to 7.30. So I'm able to still, you know, still be in a part of like the news cycle. And if I have to do stuff for like the early shows, like the four or no, the five or six, then you know, I have to do that. But other than that, it's still, I have to, like it, my schedule allows me to, like I said, get the best of the four. So still interact with some people in the morning, interact with people at night side, and then interact with people like day side. So I get to see different parts and different people from different shows. Which is yeah. Nice. Yeah. So you still get to interact with pretty much everyone, you know, just in different, at different times, at different, you know, places. And, which is interesting because I feel like, you know, people coming into work uh, later might have different, like, you know, attitudes, like they're getting into work while people are getting off. It's kind of that, that like, you can just kind of see the different attitudes of people when yes. they, they come in when people are leaving. So I, that could, that could be pretty cool. And it's um, also like, I mean, I feel like Nightside also has like the, for people that, like you said, people that aren't familiar with the everyday like 24 hour news or just the 24 hour news cycle this news in general yeah um i've actually dated people before and they would be like you know oh what are you doing or like oh like i'm at work and they're like it's like a nine ten o'clock at night why are you at work and i'm just like that's what time my shift is and they're like oh are you a stripper like are you an escort it was like, all the time, like, awful. i'm like no i'm a journalist and they're like well why are you working so late and i was like you don't you've never heard of the 11 p.m news like i don't like 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 please respect my profession Right. I'm just like, I have a bachelor's and a master's degree. What, what makes you think I would be, I mean, not any disrespect to those who are in the industry <laughs> and who have multiple advanced degrees. However, just like if you would think somebody that in this area, you would think somebody who is working late, typically it's either like working on the Hill that's working, you know, as a lawyer or some type of like, you know, job other mm -hmm. than, you know, but, oh, like, are you a stripper? I'm like, are you ignorant? Like, yeah. I just know. yeah. Yeah. I get that. Um, I don't know, something I've been watching a lot lately is House of Cards. I'm on my like mm, yeah. third rewatch, even though, you know, all the stuff <laughs> around that show. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's just uh, really interesting to see um, how different a world it is in DC first, but also like how, how much of a dream job that must be for a reporter, you know what I mean? Because like, yeah. if, there's, if there's anywhere in the world where there's always something happening, I mean, you got to put DC in the top, you know, five, maybe top three, you know what I mean? So, yeah, so people usually think like New York, Los Angeles, DC, you would throw maybe like Chicago in there. You know, obviously people think about Chicago like for crime, but obviously like crime never stops. So you would like throw Chicago in there. And then maybe I would say like Dallas, Dallas or Houston would be up there. And then maybe you would throw in like Atlanta. What's going on? Dallas and Houston. Um, this based off like you know that's the the hurricanes or tornadoes and just the weather okay. that's down there. Um, so that like I would picture I would put them in the top because obviously like it's it's a good news market to work in. And I've had like I have friends that have worked there or friends that are currently working in Dallas and I said oh it's such it's so nice just come and work and we have a sister station that's in Houston and actually you know, have another one in Dallas. And I remember talking to my mom, I was like, oh, like, what do you do about me moving to Texas? And she was like, that's too far. And then now I'm thinking about it, I'm just like, okay, like, it is too far. So, like, I've been strategic when thinking about my future when it comes to, like, what my next steps would be if I were to leave D.C. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be, like, too far from home, 
just in case if I have to go home, but I do want to be like, oh, I don't want to be in a drive distance where mom will pop up like, hey, what's up? <laughs> I'm like, mm, no. Yeah. Well, side note, uh, so I'm in Atlanta right now. Um, and for people listening, Jonathan and I are both from Columbia, South Carolina. And so, you know, technically I'm a drive away from home, but my mom is, came to visit me in Atlanta exactly one time uh, since I moved uh, in June of 2018. So I don't know how your mom is, but I have not had to worry about my mom making the trip. Right. But I feel like even like, I mean, my mom, like she says she, she's like, oh, I won't come pop up. I won't do that. And granted, like she didn't really pop up that much. Well, she maybe popped up like maybe a handful of times when I was at Wofford and Wofford mm-hmm. from Columbia, Wofford's in Spartanburg, South Carolina, which is an upstate region for those who are listening. Um, and it's going to be like an hour, 30, hour, 45, depending on how you drive. Maybe hour, I've done an hour 15, don't <laughs> speed. But, you know, I'm, you know, you can get there an hour, typically hour and a half, hour 45. And it's like she didn't really pop up like that. And essentially, like, it's just straight up 26. Mm-hmm. She'd work downtown. You just take 26 all the way downtown so she can easily just get off and just go straight. But she never did that. But I feel like now that I'm older, I feel like she might, oh, I'm just going to take a road trip, but I still don't think she would, because she wouldn't even pop up in D.C. She's only been here, let's see, when I first moved, when I graduated J school, and I think what, so she's only been up here three times. Okay. But granted, like, D.C. from Columbia is, like, yeah, that's a, six hours away. It's a hike, for sure. Yeah. So, speaking of that, you're from South Carolina. I just mentioned we're both from Columbia, right? Mm-hmm. And now you're in D.C. So what was your initial reaction, um, you know, the first time you moved from South Carolina to D.C.? Well, so I've always wanted to live in D.C. So I, um, you know, when growing up, uh, and I think what scandal came out like our senior year of high school, our junior year of high school, senior high school. Something like that. Something like that. And I was like, oh, I want to, you know, move to D.C. It'd be like Olivia Pope, like, you know, da, da, da. So like, I was dead set on going to Georgetown University for undergrad. So I was like, I'm going to Georgetown, whether they give me a penny, or whether I have to like sell <laughs> my soul, or whether I have to like sell my car, sell my dog, all that. Like I'm going to Georgetown, because I'd already knew like it would be, a, it's a private institution, so I already knew it would be expensive to go. Right. So I was like, okay, if I don't get to Georgetown, I'm gonna, you know, go to GW. If I don't go to GW, I'm gonna go to Howard. If I don't go to Howard, I'm gonna go to America. So like I applied to all the schools in the area. Mm-hmm. And of course like, I got applied to, you know, like the Clemson and College of Charleston. Um, the only school I didn't apply to, and like no shade to USC, I just didn't apply there because I knew like I didn't want to go, I didn't want to stay at home. Yeah. And like live like 20, 30 minutes away. But like I've had, you know, you and my other friends have said like, oh, USC is different if you're a student and you live downtown. But I just, I, that just wasn't in my ministry. That God knew that wasn't in my calling. I needed to leave home. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad, even though I did stay in state for college, it allowed me to still be independent and still feel like I'm away from home but I'm you know still can drive and still close so I was fortunate enough to get a full scholarship to go to Wofford and that allowed me to study abroad it allowed me to do internships with other places like Aspen Colorado Princeton New Jersey um I was able to actually study abroad twice I was able to do that I had um internships while I was in school. I was in a um, service learning and academic scholarship where I had to do community service at a nonprofit mm-hmm. when I was um, in school. So that's why I had like the experience with the nonprofit organization because I actually interned for four years at the Urban League of Upstate 
So I was okay. able to develop different programs and, you know, have like my communications related skills built to tailor my profession, what I'm doing now. And I also had two news internships when I was in school too. Yeah. So I was able, so I was basically doing like what they call doing the most. I was doing the most in school. Um, <laughs> still managed to walk away with two majors and a concentration and still top my class. And still, I don't, still don't know how I did it. Um, so when it came time to graduate, you know, I was thinking that's okay. Well, I don't want to be an adult and go work at, you know, a consulting firm like the rest of my friends or like, you know, I don't want to, you know, be an adult. First day, so I was like, okay, what can I do? What can I do to stall being an adult? And I was like, hmm, I'm gonna go to grad school. So I already <laughs> knew like I wanted to go to grad school, but I didn't know like if I wanted to like take a gap year because like obviously Walker was a very I would say exa- not exhausting experience, but it's a it's a it's a tough school. Yeah. So people think like, oh, like you know, is there a, uh, is there an honors college or Wofford? I'm like, no, Wofford is an honors college because it's like one of the hardest schools in the state to get into. So I was just like mentally exhausted. I was like, do I really want to sit another two years in the classroom, or do I want to go out and make money? But I I told myself if I don't go back to school, I would never go back because I would be caught up in the concept of making money. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, oh, like, I have all this money, like, I don't need to go back, and I will miss out on things that I will want to do in grad school. So I said, okay, well, I can always go to grad school and then, like, have a part-time job or, like, internships or freelance, and then let's, like, work my way around and still build my portfolio while working, mm-hmm. and then matriculate into a full-time job. So I was like, okay, well, I was going to go to grad school. So I applied to maybe, like, mm, I want to say four or five grad schools. So I applied to Georgetown, obviously. Um, I applied to Northwestern, I applied to Syracuse, um, Emerson College, and Northeastern. So I knew that I was going to go someplace DC and up. It wasn't like anything below, it wasn't like a UGA, it wasn't a Florida. I applied to like basically competitive journalism schools like DC up. I was all right, well, I'm going to land somewhere. And originally I was going to go to Northeastern and Boston. And mom was like, oh, but Boston's like so far away. It's 10 hours away. And da, da, da. I was like, okay, mother, like I've lived all over the country. I've even lived abroad. And yeah. you haven't said anything, but I feel like now, like actually like need that stepping stone to being an adult. I was like, okay, I probably should go closer to home. And now that my grandparents are getting older, I've had to, like, I've made the realization that, you know, your family is, your family's always going to be there, but eventually they're not going to always be around. Right. So I, mean, I was like, okay, I should probably be closer to home. And I always said that, like, I wanted to eventually live in D.C. So I wanted to live in Boston. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to intern in D.C. and then eventually, like, work in D.C. And I remember talking to one of my advisors in undergrad. And she was always like, okay, well, why can't you just work and live and go to school in D.C.? And I was like, well, that's just not the plan that I wanted. And it's, you know, now me being 26 and me listening to 22-year-old me thinking back, I was like, dang, I was really goofy for not <laughs> But now the thing about it, it's like, you know, you don't always have to follow your plan. And yeah. I ended up, I was like, okay, well, maybe I should just like go to DC and I should just go visit it. And like, I got visited DC a couple of times. I was like, maybe I should just like actually go visit and actually like legit take it seriously. And not party. I mean, even I did party a little bit while I was there, but <laughs> I should like, you know, actually, you know, sit down, weigh out my options. And I feel like it was one of those things where it's like, if it's meant for you to happen, it's meant to happen. And then like God puts different people and different experiences in your life and I feel like it was meant for me to end up being in DC and living in DC versus going to Boston because I feel like my Boston options did not work out I ended up you know pulling out from the program in Boston 
and committed to uh, Georgetown J School. And I remember the day that I said yes to go to Georgetown and everything set up, I found out I got the full fellowship, which is like, you know, full tuition, everything set up. And it was only awarded to five African-American students in their graduate, like all graduate programs, including PhDs at Northeastern. And at the beginning of the fellowship, and I was like, well, you know, don't want to say this, this is a regret, but I feel like this is meant to happen. I was like, DC, don't disappoint me. And then I've, four years later, I'm still here. So I yeah. guess it ended up working out. No, absolutely. I mean, that's an amazing sort of story of uh, all the twists and turns of how you decided on DC and all that other stuff. So there's a couple of things that I heard in there. So you had a couple of internships, um, you studied abroad. And you ended up saying uh, you don't always have to follow your plan. And so can you tell me about the two places? Because I don't think you mentioned exactly where you studied abroad. Tell me about those two places and how you think that they shaped your decision ultimately to do journalism school, journalism school and to uh, pretty much target D.C. As, as your landing spot. Yeah, so I so I ended up studying. Um, so Wofford had this um, interesting concept when it came to um, their school calendar and their education. So we had this thing called interim, mm-hmm. um, which was like most places will call it like a May semester. So you have like a May semester, obviously in May, uh, and it kind of shapes your calendar. And then most places have a J term. So our our interim was essentially a J term. So Wofford was on the 414 calendar. We had four months in the fall, one month for a J term, and then four months in the spring. So they didn't really like mess up the course calendar. So like our spring semesters essentially started February 1st. And then we started school like late August, early September, or really essentially after Labor Day. And we just graduated the weekend after Mother's Day. So that was essentially how the calendar worked. And like we didn't have to stay later. We didn't have to stay, you know, earlier. And essentially I got to do a month of just no like math classes, no like, you know, related, you know, English classes. I just took that one thing, just focused on that one thing. And that was all I did for the month. So my senior year, I uh, ended up going to India and Nepal. Um, so I spent two and a half weeks in Nepal, two and a half weeks in India. Um, so that was really, I really went three if you think about it so those were the two places i went to um senior year mm-hmm. um and then my junior year i spent four months in ghana mm. so I was in the, yeah i was in ghana for four months which is really crazy to think about people like, oh my gosh like have you like how did you spend four months there and i was like i really felt like i was just two weeks but yeah. it was essentially like a whole semester so i went my junior spring semester um those experiences i felt like really shaped me as a person because i feel like junior year i was you know, like 20 going turning 21 going abroad so I was like okay this is my first time like being away away from the United States and away from home well like I've always tra- I've traveled out of the country but it was always like with you know school or you know with like other groups of people but me actually like immersing myself in the culture mm-hmm. and like not and, like meeting people while I was there that was like a, a change for me because like I'm an introvert I'm very you know I have friends in all places I can pick up basically pick up the phone or pick up Facebook and like hey y'all like I'm in your area what's up like come through you know stuff like that and this that experience allowed me to be out of my comfort zone yeah really tested like make sure that you know one I'm still an introvert I'm still an extrovert and then two I'm able to adapt and you know learn my way around new cultures and new experiences um, and to this day, I still talk to people that were that are in my program, 
We're talking about like, hey, ha ha, remember that one time we went to this place in Hollywood, da 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 da. And it was able to, you know, form lifelong relationships with people, you know, basically expanding my relationships and expanding my network through, you know, all parts of the country. Because I have people that, you know, live in Connecticut, that were my program, people that are actually in DC, actually like I'm good friends with one, one of my friends who was in the program. We both live in DC now when I was actually just texting her not too long ago. We're like, hey, what's up? Like, oh yeah, I was like, I miss you and this and that. And then we're just like, we always have that. It's like another added experience, like another group of brothers and sisters. Cause we basically just spent four months with each other. Yeah, and, absolutely. And then my experience in India, I would say really tested me to appreciate the United States. Cause I feel like it's, it's very different in India. And I would say, like, I've always been like, we have people say like, oh, like, are you woke? Are you this? So I've always been, woke per se because I always know like you know right from wrong like oh that's racist oh that's sexist oh that's prejudice that but I feel like me in college was a way to be like I'm more awake in a sense mm-hmm. so I was able to use my studies and my experiences that I've learned in and out of the classroom to apply them to everyday life and I was able to you know really compare and contrast the differences that India has in conjunction to the United States comparison related to the caste system and how you know some parts of you know India are you know are not so great economically so you I would have to you know we had it was a comparison and really it was a comparison but also it was a program that challenged me to think outside of the box and we study like intercultural communication and incompetence so we're able to really internalize and communicate across different languages in different cultures right. um and i joke around my, with my friends that went to india I always said like i feel like i left my soul there because it's like i feel that it changed me and i had a different experience when i came back to the united states and that was my like i said that interim so that was going into my spring semester of my senior year so i was able to really test you know have a different grasp on what I wanted to do in life, what I wanted to study in terms of like focusing on journalism, where I wanted to live. So I was able to use those experiences abroad and even domestically when I lived, you know, for three months in Princeton, New Jersey and Aspen, Colorado to really ascend to being an adult without adult responsibilities. So I was able to, like I said, apply those experiences and make them useful for, you know, living life in D.C. Yeah, absolutely. Like be a, you know pay bills to be an adult and have a big boy job yeah okay so out of that story i'm, I'm gonna rattle off a couple places to you and then i'm gonna i'm gonna posit a question to you i don't even know if positive is the right word in that <laughs> situation i don't think it is but we have aspen princeton boston dc india nepal ghana so what drew you to wusa tv Ooh, so, okay, so previously I worked for the competitor, which was uh, WJLA, um, the ABC affiliate in DC. Okay. And I worked there, I started off as a digital content producer, so it's essentially, um, the, like, the stories that you see online. Um, like, you know, you click on the story, it's like, oh, five people, five people shot, two people dead in this one DC neighborhood, like, stuff like that. Um, so, like, I was basically doing that and, like, basically putting out news content on the station's social platforms and ended up um you know did that and then I got you know they wanted to revamp the way that they present news digitally so I'm matriculated into being a digital reporter 
Okay. Um, so digital reporter slash multi-platform content producer. So able to do stuff on air and do stuff for digital, but basically like tailoring my platform, tailoring my storytelling to digital and then transforming it to on air. So my thought process was first to how can it both, how can it be on digital? How can then I correlate it to on air next? So did that. So I was at JLA for, let's see, August 2018 until September, no, October 2019. Okay. Um, and then after, so I went to, so that last summer I went to the National Association of Black Journalists and usually they have like this big career fair and they have like, you know, recruiters from like all types of, you know, you know, major networks like ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, all that. Mm-hmm. And then they have the um, the broadcast stations that, you know, own the local stations. So you have like your Agnes, Sinclair, Scripps, um, let's see, Gray, you know, all the different media companies. And you have like, you know, the Washington Post. So they have a little bit of something for everybody. What if you want to do print, digital, or broadcast? So I remember going around, shopping out my resume. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I already have a job, but it wouldn't hurt to you know, just go to the career fair and just get some critiques, you know, see what happens, make connections. So, you know, you, I always had the concept of it's like, if you, like, good things will happen to those that are stuck in comfort zones. So I always knew that, like, eventually I would leave JLA. Like, I don't know if I would stay in DC, but eventually I would, you know, leave and I would like to leave and I would, you know, like to grow and learn as a journalist. So why not just make the connections now? So when I do decide to leave, it'll be great. You know, I have those connections and I would able to build and uh, grow my portfolio. Mm-hmm. So I remember sitting down at one of the recruiters' tables, and I had talking to this particular recruiter before um, when I was like in the job search beforehand, and he was like, "Oh, like let's catch up." So it was more like a conversation, and not like, "Oh, like how are you?" Like my name is Jonathan. Oh, my name is Jay. It wasn't anything formal. It was just like, "Hey, let's catch up." Yeah. He's like, "Oh, you have your current resume," and I was like, "Yeah, here it is." And like, here's my samples. Here's my, you know, my tape all that he was looking at it, he was like oh you know i just don't think you know you're ready to move quite yet and i was <laughs> reversing here i think i might actually said this out of my mouth and i really you know i mean this being directed i was like you know i didn't really come here for critiques i just wanted to get the headshot so at the, the company that i was like sitting down with they gave away free headshots yeah and the, like the recruiter the black lady who was like sitting there like checking people in which is funny because she's actually works as the HR director for my current station, mm-hmm. which I didn't know. Um, and so she was like, oh, Jonathan, like, let me see. And I was with my friend, um, who you actually know, Lena Pringle. So yeah. We, yeah, so me and Lena were actually at the convention, hung out together. And she told us, she was like, so, you know, I'm gonna let y'all in on the secret. If you want to get the headshots, don't sign up just for the headshot, meet with a recruiter. And then once you meet with a recruiter, you can get the skip line, essentially, you can get your headshot. Okay. So I was like, okay, like, I just want to, you know, I already know the recruiter's name. And, you know, I already know the recruiter. So I was basically this conversation. She was like, oh, well, I don't think you're ready to move markets. Just sit or move. And I was like, I really just want the headshot. I wasn't really here for the critiques. I just doing what I was told. Yeah, just give me the headshot. Right, just give me the headshot. <laughs> so after I did that, I remember getting back from, so NABJ was in Miami. I remember getting back from Miami to DC that next maybe week or so. He, the recruiter hit me up. He was like, hey, I'm in town. Um, let's meet up for, I think it's like, let's meet up for coffee or something. And then I was working at the time before I told you I was working 3 to 11.30. So I was really strategic if I wanted to like meet people or run errands. I needed to do it before 3 
p.m. because I needed to leave, or I knew to do it before 2.30. So that way I had that buffer to get from whatever DC, maneuver DC traffic to get to the news station. Definitely, yeah. Right. So I remember meeting on him. He said, hey, we have a couple openings at the station and we're actually, you know, doing this new initiative. Then I didn't think at the time the, the the show that I work for now was being revamped. It was called Offsprit before, and then now it's called the Q and A. So they were revamping it. And it was launching in September, um, like maybe like late September, early October. So like, hey, we're launching this new initiative. We're looking for digital multimedia journalists to join our team, and they actually had an opening for the morning show as well. So you know we're, we're you know revamping a couple things at you know WSA would you be interested in applying? And I was like, I mean, if the money's right, you know, I'll fly, you know, <laughs> like I'm, you know, I'm not about to, you know, go across the river is what they say and do the same job or the same, or do a, basically, I guess, kind of sort of the same job or do, you know, kind of stay in the same, you know, digital storytelling realm and making the same money. And I was like, well, I need to at least make a, a decent coin if I'm going yeah. to like go to the competitor. And he was like, you know, we'll talk about that whenever, you know, we get past the interview. And I was like, okay, so you know, I'll apply to send my information literally that next week. And he was in town for like two weeks. So that next week he brought me in for an interview and everything went well. It was great. And that was like maybe October. No, that was, I want to say that was late August, early September. And I didn't hear anything back in September. And I was thinking like, okay, like either I bombed this interview <laughs> or I didn't get it. So I was just like, you know what? I have a job. And I remember one of my mentors saying, it's, it's always, she said, it's always easy to find a job when you have a job. And I was like, mm-hmm. I don't really think that's true because I'm still trying to find a job and I have a job and I think it's difficult. But then again, DC is a competitive market. So I was like, okay, like whatever you said. And um, so like September went by and I was like, all right, I didn't hear anything. And my old, my former boss, she had went on vacation. She went on a two-week vacation. Um, and it's just, the story is really funny every time I tell it. So she went on a two-week vacation. She went to Europe. And I think she went to, she went to Oktoberfest and a couple other places. Anyway, so she said at, um, she, she worked previously in Baltimore before she came to D.C. Mm-hmm. She said that the last time, when she was in Baltimore, the last time she went on a two-week vacation out of the country, one of her employees quit and I was thinking like <laughs> okay like whatever no, that's just she, she told us for such she's like, okay I'll be back in two weeks don't anybody quit and I was like okay whatever uh-huh. so literally she was gone that you know in, in October so my last day at WJLA so to fast forward I'm a backtrack the last my last day at WJLA was October 28th 2019 okay we backtrack you know obviously 7 14 21 28 she was gone the 7th and then I got the official job offer from WSA on the 14th. No, no, so I got it like, no, it was maybe, it was maybe October 9th or 10th. Okay. And it was in the middle when she was gone. And I was like, okay, well, I can't quit, you know, turn my two weeks, you know, now because my boss is gone. So I actually want to have this sit down conversation. Hey, I'm leaving. Here's my two week notice. Okay, do you want to, you know, do a counter offer? Blah, blah, blah. You know, the standard procedures whenever you're leaving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be that raggedy and quit while, you know, like <laughs> she said, don't quit. Well, somebody's gone. Yeah. So it's okay. Well, I'm just going to wait till she gets back. So she got back October 14th. That was a Monday. I remember this day I worked my shift. And I remember uh, before I went out to go do my story, and she was getting ready because she works like 8 30 or 9 to 5 or 5 30. I remember. 
she was getting ready to leave and I was like hey Courtney can I talk to you for a minute and she was like yeah what's up and I was like can I talk to you at your office and so she kind of knew like when people before my, when my old co-workers were you know getting ready to quit she would always knew like okay if you're gonna talk to me in the office it's either like you're talking about somebody or you're about to put in your notice yep so I sat down and I was like well and I really and and I quote I said this I said well good news for me bad news for you which one do you want to hear first? She was like, I already know what you're about to say. And I was like, well, good news for me is I'm quitting. I got a new job. Bad news is you have to find another employee because I quit in two weeks. She was like, what? And then this was also around the time of when um, the Nationals were in the World Series. So this was a bad time to quit because no, a stuff going on. Well, stuff was going on and we were already down another digital reporter. And they hadn't filled that spot before. So we were essentially out. We were all were working. And the person who quit before me, he was he worked Sunday through Thursday, half Friday, Saturday. So we were all taking turns doing working Sunday shifts. And I remember before I was working like a Sunday through a th- his Sunday through Thursday shift. And I remember, you know, walking to our office. I was like, you know, I'm just tired of working, you know, working weekends. And at the time, and I still do, obviously, but it's virtual, I'll go to church. I was like, you know, I really can't go to church because I'm working eight to four on Sundays and it's hard to watch church online whenever you're like out in the field or you're in the newsroom, so it's kind of hard to do. So I was like, you yeah. know, I feel, you know, you told me I would be able to go to church and I can't do that. And I, you know, was really trying to, you know, refoster my relationship with Christ and really be about my spirituality instead of just, you know, doing quote unquote bedside Baptist. I was actually like, you know, going to church. So I was like, you know, I really feel like I'm not, you know, going to church. I just feel like I'm not happy working the chef. I just feel like I'm just not happy. And they're giving me more money and more opportunities to do more creative storytelling. Um, which was like, I told her, I was like, you know, I'm not believing this saying like, oh, you're not saying for that opportunities. I was like really honest because I don't want the next person that will be in my situation to feel a certain way. And she will be able to kind of like, whenever she's going in the hiring process to kind of factor in those things that I was telling her. Mm-hmm. So long story short, ended up quitting. My last day was so put in my two weeks on the 14th. My last day was the 28th of October, and I started at WSA, the competitor to CBS station, on November 4, 2019, and I've been there ever since. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's probably the most uh, amazing way I've ever heard of somebody putting in their two weeks, so congratulations on that. <laughs> right. Uh, I feel like I've, I was always, like, you know, good, I didn't know how to put her up, like, hey, like, I'm quitting, or, like, my last day, I was just, like, good news for me, because she always knows, like, I am a very... I feel, like I feel like I'm a very direct person. People think I'm funny, which, I mean, that's good to be funny and direct, but, like, you know, I could be like, oh, ha, 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 like that, you know, that shit suck. You're like, oh, you're so funny, Johnny. I'm like, no, I'm like, yeah, that's serious. Like, that shit suck. Like, and that's just, like, yeah. people just thought I'm just a very, like, you know, funny person. But I told her, I was like, no, like, I'm leaving. Like, good news for me, bad news for you. Like, I'm leaving. Like, mm-hmm. It is what it is. And she respected it. I mean, to this day, like, I still use her for references. You know, she helped me get into this, like, very prestigious, like, journalism, like, you know, month-long institute that I'm actually doing right now. So she was, yeah. like, one of my references for that. So she, like, you know, is still, you know, in my corner, but I feel like you always have to leave a current, like, whatever situation you're leaving, going to your next situation, you should always leave on a good note. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Never, like, burn bridges, you should never be like, oh, like, Today's my last day. I'm using my rest of my vacation. Fuck it. Like, bye. But no, you actually have to. Like, these people know the industry is small. 
and maybe like a big industry like across like 50 states and you know Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands but no people this is a very small industry and people have worked in multiple places and if you piss off one person you're basically pissing you're leaving a trail because you yeah. never know what, what that who that person that you pissed off knows in the industry absolutely so earlier uh you said this kind of jokingly but you mentioned uh Olivia Pope was one of the people who even you know as a fictional character sort of solidified in your mind that you had to go to DC right so yeah. what was it um about journalism that you identified with so strongly that you sort of um you know chased it in in many ways you know across countries across you know borders all that kind of thing so what was it about journalism that solidified it as what you wanted to do with your life up to this point well, I've always, I've always been a very inquisitive person, mm-hmm. and I've, you know, been inquisitive, been creative. From growing up, mom was like, "You always in grown folks' business. So you always ask too many questions." <laughs> and I was like, "Well, it paid off now because I'm a journalist." So, and you always brag about me saying, "Oh, my, my baby's a journalist. He's up there in DC." And I was like, "Well, I just find it funny how you would say when I was growing up, I was always in everybody's business asking questions, but now I'm doing this for a living." Anyway, so <laughs> anyway, so I've always been a very inquisitive person and I found myself you know I did like creative writing and I've always been fascinated with the human interest stories when it came to journalism so I would always like wake up in the morning um before school growing up and I would always watch um WIS so I was watching you know WIS Sunrise the morning show and then it would always like play obviously with 7 a.m hit it would always play like the day show so I would always you know watch the morning headlines and just be so intrigued and then you know obviously like my grandparents live in Columbia so I'd always I hang out at my grandma's house um and she would always watch the news and I was just like oh we just gotta watch the news but I was always you know fascinated with you know oh today's top headlines and other stories and you like having that routine of watching the news like I still obviously like working in news I still watch you know the nightly news I still watch you know the the new news you know even though I'm at work I watch the morning show so I'm always trying to diversify my news outlets and sources. So I was doing that from an early age. I said, oh, like I would always, you know, I want to be a storyteller, you know, I always want to do this. And I would always play like, you know, bootleg or fake, you know, newscasts at home and put together and like make my, you know, siblings and cousins like do, you know, newscasts and be like, oh, I'll be the anchor, you be the reporter and like somebody does the weather. So I was always, you know, doing that. And when it came down to, you know, in middle school, I did, you know, the morning news show, as you know, like in high school, I was in the journalism magnet program and in college, I worked for the school newspaper and I had two internships in TV. And then, you know, it just kind of led down to this trail of me blossoming into a journalist. Right. Okay. No, I think that makes sense. And, and I love that you sort of pointed out the, uh, I don't want to call it hypocrisy, but just the, the difference that doing something for a living makes in people's minds, right? Because <laughs> Anybody can be uh, inquisitive and ask questions and people think they're annoying, but once you do it for a living, it's like there's a level of respect, like, oh, you made a job out of, you know, your personality. Right, like, that's that's why I always tell, like, you know, my, we're at the age now that we can have children, and I always tell, like, my friends that are having kids, or I always tell, like, obviously, like, my aunts and uncles or older cousins who are having children, I said, never diminish your child's, like, 
you know, inquisitive nature or, you know, like, oh, like, they're, you know, always playing video games so much. I'm like, okay, well, if they're making straight A's and they're playing video games, like, maybe they have a fascination for, like, graphic design or computer science or, like, mm-hmm. oh, they're always on the phone. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, like, you know, I always had the model, like, if your grades are good and you're, like, you know, that's your hobby talking on the phone or texting, whatever, you want to be a communicator, that can evolve into something as a career. So, like, never, like, diminish or kind of you know how black parents are like, oh, like you always on that damn phone, or yeah. you know, oh, like, why are you always on your phone doing this? But I was like, but you never know how those things that your children are doing, how they can play and blossom into a career. Do you know they're always like, you know, big on, you know, oh, you should be in STEM, you should be a doctor, you should be this. Like if they're always like asking questions, or if they're always like fascinated with something, mm-hmm. don't stop them from doing that because they never know where it can lead to. Yeah, absolutely. Especially my parents are always like, oh, like, make money so you can take care of me. If your child wants to, you know, play fake doctor, let them play fake doctor because doctors make a lot of money. There you go. If they want to build with Legos, let them do that because engineers make a lot of money. If you want your children to take care of you, don't stop them. Don't stop them from their bag. Mm-hmm. That's my motto. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Uh, well, earlier you mentioned, um, I think you said, uh, basically, part of your job now is, um, you know, tailoring your stories to digital, but then finding ways to uh, sort of correlate them to on-air programming. And so uh, question one is, do you think that's more of a recent shift uh, as far as you've seen in your career and the roles you've had? And question two, um, how would you characterize how the roles you've had have changed over the course of your career? Like, are they uh, shifting more digital? Are they shifting in a specific sort of type of story? Like, are there uh, any major themes you can pull out of what your jobs have expected out of you as you've gone in your career? Yeah, I would say first, you know, the mindset of the industry now versus what it was like 10 to 15 years ago. Obviously, like, we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have iPhones. Like, you know, the iPhone was still around but it's not as advanced as what it was at, w- at what it is now mm-hmm. um so now before like the with like tv and digital kind of i won't necessarily say they're competing but now people have the motto of digital first tv second but i feel like digital and tv should be equal you should treat both of your products the way that they should be treated so it's kind of what like the situation that saying where it's like oh treat the way like treat the way that you want to be treated, like treat others the way you want to be treated, you should treat both your products. So don't like half-ass your digital product and then make your TV product great or don't half-ass your TV product and make your digital product great. So kind of have like a equilibrium or have people who are now that are in the industry and knowing how to do both, allow both like both angles or both mediums Mm -hmm. to still tell their story. So it's kind of like, you know, like with social media, like obviously, you know, me being a digital first journalist, I'm able to like pick up my smartphone, get on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, tweet out the information, turn it into a digital story and then worry about the TV product next because I'm able to like, if I'm getting away. So it's kind of like a, a chart if I'm able to like check off, okay, this social media, doing my digital script, doing the TV script, go back and track it, put it together, you know, package every TV. So I'm able to do those certain things and kind of have the routine and the rhythm. Mm-hmm. I'm able to tell the story didn't affect the way because not every not every product has this, the same voice. So you wouldn't use the same style, write the same style on trying to get a message out on Twitter as you would do on Instagram. Mm-hmm. 
right. you want to do the same thing for Instagram, it's how you do it on Facebook. So you have to kind of like take the time and, you know, make it right for that particular platform and as well as for TV. So you have to be more conversational now when it comes to storytelling to get your message across. And in terms of the roles that I've had, um, we're still trying to find creative ways to still be digital journalists. And now that like we're obviously in the middle of a pandemic, being able to tell those stories, but do it remotely, but still get the news out in an accurate manner. So like before, you know, people are like, oh, you know, if you ain't first, you're last, you know, you need to get it out first. But it's like, yeah, I mean, getting out first is all right, but you need to have accurate information. So you don't want to say, oh, five people shot, two people dead, but it's actually like five people shot and one person's in critical condition because that can easily, like, you just basically kill two people. Yeah. So you need to actually, like, you know, take time to fact check and be factually correct before putting it out first. So I would rather have the fact straight and get it out and still have a creative message of being first and having incorrect information. So it's all about, you know, accuracy, but not necessarily speed. Yeah. Versus before, back in the day, it was all about speed and not accuracy, which is taking a shift on how people really trust journalists and how they trust our industry mm. when it comes to, you know, quote unquote, the media and fake news and all that. So it's really having to allow, like in our industry and now as journalists and millennial journalists, we're having to basically gain the trust back of our audience that the previous generations kind of have, I want to say that have messed up, but the way that storytelling has evolved, a lot of people have lost trust. So we're trying to gain trust back by being more vulnerable, being more present on social media, you know, telling creative, telling stories in creative ways and like getting a message out, but that wouldn't traditionally be told in a certain way. Yeah. So uh, I want to just quickly piggyback off of that. So how does uh, this, you know, combination of fake news, um, the police attacks that we're seeing um, on protesters, on the media itself, and uh, you mentioned lost trust. How do those three things sort of uh, come together in, in your experience? Like, have you found um, ways to sort of, you know, deal with that, to combat it, to, you know, sort of overcome it? I would say me being, just me being a, a person of color, me being a black person, mm. and it's really, I would say, not necessarily, I mean, we don't want to go into the debates of like, oh, black privilege versus white privilege, but I feel like me being a black person in DC, I've had had certain privileges that my white counterparts have not had. So mm. like, I can go into the quote unquote rough parts of DC and being able to gather stories and gather elements and doing that versus my white counterparts that probably wouldn't be able to get the certain stories because of the fact that most communities of color traditionally don't trust news. So like they'll watch the news, but they don't trust the media or journalists going to their community because they had certain like, you know, other journalists or like white journalists being able to like, you know, tell the story in a different way or they're basically kind of um, using them as like, you know, like an exhibit or making them like a charity case and mm -hmm. not necessarily like telling them and allowing the like allowing your subjects to be stories and for them to tell the story. Right. So me being able to like, I can go across the river to Southeast and be like, hey, what up? You know, tell me what happened at this house right here. Like I see the house going on fire. Like, hey, the, you know, tell me what happened. And then they can be able, I can have that relationship and like the guard is already down because they see a journalist, like they see somebody like them mm -hmm. being able to tell the story. That don't come across as, you know, I don't come, you know, with my camera first and everything saying, hey, you know, 
I'm Jonathan Franklin with WSA9. Can you tell me about what happened right here? Like, I'm able to, I want to set the ground first, knowing that, like, it's okay. Like, I'm not going to exploit you. Like, let's have a conversation. And then, like, once I get them to, like, ease up, uh, I'm like, oh, like, do you mind saying this on camera? Like, oh, like, do you mind if I record this? And then mm -hmm. that way I'm able to tell the story and have a lot of emotion um, that traditionally wouldn't be that story will be told if they just did it the other way. Like, hey, like, I'm such with this news out. Like, can I, you know, exploit you and put this camera in your face? So you <laughs> yeah. want to, like, right, you want to be able to, like, allow your subjects to, you know, be at ease and mm. making them feel like they're not a puppet. Yeah, no, absolutely. So if in that situation, um, your Blackness, it sounds like it sort of gives you this level of access that isn't, you know, given to your white counterparts, right? So yes, on the say, yeah, I would say that. Yeah. Okay. On the flip side, uh, what are you, you know, what are some of the biggest obstacles you've had to overcome um, because you are, you know, a black man in the newsroom? I would say like when it comes to getting not only like getting certain stories, but you know, just being able to like it's like it's hard being a black journalist navigating a newsroom because there's not a lot of managers of color or black managers that are in leadership like is it in leadership roles mm -hmm. that look out for black journalists you know so it's essentially you know i might not i might not get certain privileges in the newsroom or you know be able to i might not have the upper hand because i don't look like the rest of the managerial staff you know right. so it's you know i'm not granted as i say like you know oh like can i you know cover the story or hey, can i switch the shift but it's like, oh, I'm like, you know, we already have such and such trying to cover it, but it's like, but this is a big story. So I feel like there's certain advantages and disadvantages when it comes to like editorial decisions, or even when it comes to telling stories regarding minorities, mm -hmm. and minorities aren't the ones telling the story. It's, often it's oftentimes given to, you know, white journalists, and then you can kind of see the storytelling, it's different because it's not, you kind of say like they don't relate to the person when telling the story. Yeah. So if there's a, a lack of sort of, you know, uh, blackness at the managerial level or, you know, black people in a newsroom at that level, have you been able to find, you know, like mentors or, or people who have, I don't want to say taking you under their wing, but sort of that you can look up to that you can get advice from? Yeah, so definitely like within NABJ, I'm able to like tap into a network of people who are in the same boat as me. Like we're all black journalists and probably don't have a lot of black people in our newsroom. Um, and they're like veteran journalists that have been in the situation that I've been in and they're able to give me guidance and give me advice on how to navigate certain newsroom politics mm -hmm. in order to, you know, make survival fitness. I'm able to, you know, make ends meet or, you know, be able to you know, be the journalist that I am today by having the advice and the guidance because, you know, I've, there are certain situations where, you know, A, I can react the way that the old Jonathan would react or B, I can react the way that I know I'm supposed to react or yeah. it's either, you know, react the way I'm supposed to react but get guidance on how to do it a little bit more correctly right. and not having to lose respect from my coworkers. Yeah. Okay. No, I think that makes sense. And that's a good point too. So I want to shift a little bit and uh, talk about sort of what's going on in the world of journalism right now. Like what's, uh, you know, what's really changing in the way you do your work, you know, something you see out there just in the field in general. Um, so I guess a, a way I could rephrase this is what should somebody who's in J school right now and they're set on being a journalist, they know they want to be a journalist, 
what's going to change in the next, you know, three to five years um, that's probably going to completely change how they do their work? What do you see that being? Um, and to this point, like, it all depends on the presidential cycle. So it depends on who is going to be in office come in November. Mm-hmm. Um, when it, and our current, you know, presidential administration, um, you've seen the attack that the president has had on journalists. You've seen the attack that the president's had on black journalists. You've seen the attack on, you know, oh, I, you know, oh, CNN is fake news and I only trust Fox News and, you know, this, that, and the third. So the way that he's imposing those views on journalists and kind of spewing that into, you know, people in different communities, that's how we don't have the trust from people because, like, if you have somebody that's in this higher level position, telling people how they should think and how they should act towards a, a group that's serving you within the first amendment then that's how you kind of not like brainwashing them but that's how you kind of like putting that bad taste in their mouth mm-hmm. and that's how they should treat journalists and that's why you're seeing journalists being on tech um doing covering doing their job you're seeing black journalists being arrested on television you're seeing black journalists being told they can't cover protests you're seeing black yeah. journalists not getting certain opportunities because of the fact that the way that those imposing views from higher up it's the trickle effect is going down. So you're not able, we're not able to do our jobs the way that we're supposed to do it because of the fact that we have this person that's kind of hindering the way that we're doing our job. So I've had counterparts or I've had people in, you know, certain circles that are covering the White House and they don't get their questions asked or answered because of the color of their skin or because Mm -hmm. of the outlet they work for. So I really do think that the way that this upcoming presidential cycle will turn out will either be a hit or miss or make it or break it on how journalists are able to survive for the next however many years. Yeah. Critical, like these next four years, depending on how the cycle will turn out, will make or break the industry. Okay, let's assume, um, and this is the cynic in me, let's assume (laughs) that, you know, the things stay the same for the next four years, right? And in in that situation where you have, you know, rhetoric, actions from the top down that are really suppressing, you know, the voice of journalists, the trust that, uh, you know, people have in the media as an establishment, what, you know, what do you even have in your toolbox to combat that when there's so much sort of negative rhetoric, so much hatred coming down at you, at your profession? What can you even do about that? Well, no, we always know that we have freedom of speech in the First Amendment. So we always know, as you know, as a journalist, you should, you, you should always know your rights mm-hmm. as a journalist and as a storyteller in this industry and in this era when it comes to not only covering, like, local, but also, like, national and just, like, covering anything because, like, we're an easy target now. So um, when it comes to that, like, you journalists should always know their rights when, like, covering a rally, when covering a protest when covering the White House, when covering local events, because at the fact that, like you said, like we don't know how these next four years, like if they're going to stay the same and if they're going to change, well, we do know that the way that these past four years have shaped out, we know how to shift our, in- shift our storytelling, shift our industry to tell stories that won't attack us. Yeah. So what are some of the sorts of stories that uh, you've been working on lately? Ooh, so I've done a lot of stories, um, obviously, like, you know, when it comes to the protests, um, but also when it comes to covering a pandemic. So a lot of the, you know, DC area is shaping into reopening. Mm-hmm. So we're in like phase one or phase two. So telling those stories uh, when it comes to reopening, how people feel, like, do they still want, do they still trust 
going out or like the restriction that's being lifting, um, do they still trust going out? Like, would you sit at a restaurant? Would you, you know, go to a movie? Would you, you know, hang out with people in a group of 10 or more? So like kind of finding those different strangles when we were in the midst of the pandemic and the midst of coronavirus, Mm -hmm. trying to find stories that weren't about like, oh, you know, the death toll of coronavirus in Maryland is 458 people and we now have 48,000 cases. Like, it's, you know, having to have a different but interesting story. So one story that I did, it was dealing, it was talking about how, and I did this actually with a coworker of mine, we talked about how um, the hair industry was suffering from coronavirus. So a lot of um, hair care products when it comes to like, you know, weaves and, uh, or even this like things about when it comes to beauty about like nails and, you know, things of that nature. Um, come from China or they're imported from China with not necessarily Wuhan but just like just China or like overseas in general and how you know when it came to like March and April things weren't shipping out because obviously the pandemic how the beauty industry whether it was like barbers or salons or you know beauticians etc how they were suffering because of the fact that this pandemic was happening people have that stigma against China now Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to racism oh like I want to order something from Wuhan because you might get the coronavirus so you know just things of that nature show how that industry was suffering due to this ongoing pandemic so that was an interesting story that I did another one Ooh, let's see another story um i've done a couple like hard news stories i've done one where the man this man attempted to blow up the pentagon not too long ago it was maybe like february he was like oh i'm gonna blow up the pentagon he like wrote a letter and he you know said all his actions he's like oh i'm gonna blow it up with this truck and it was a lot i've done that the crazy story i've done um which went viral and i think it's still trending in certain places because i see it pop up nowadays like on my newsfeed and pop up where I get like spike alerts from the, we use this um, platform or this service called Chartbeat. So I see it pop up nowadays and it's like, this tool will never die. <laughs> um, it was about um, this person um, came back from China. And this is actually like when coronavirus was just like taking off, but it was like early, it was around Valentine's Day. So it was in the area, it was in the United States, but it was in Washington state, but it wasn't necessarily like in our region or it wasn't widespread as it was now. Okay. But this person came back from China, and they came to um, Dulles International Airport, which is in our area, Washington Dulles International Airport. And they came through customs, um, and they came through customs with, I think it was two dozen of dead birds. What? Yes, they came through with two dozen dead birds that were, like, shriveled up, and I like, I can send you the article after this, but it was, like, really graphic to see yeah. these birds. But, um, the birds they said were um, the person who checked them in through customs had said that um, they wanted they bought the birds to use them as like you know a pet treat so like you can feed them to like dogs or cats or rabbits or whatever but they were like shriveled up dead birds um, that were used as like a pet snack and I found the story and I was like this shit is crazy so like I wrote yeah. it up did everything da 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 and they like put it out on the internet and it just took off for the fact that it really i think at that point so i was working so november december january february so i was working that was my like three and a half month stint at the station Mm -hmm. and that story alone brought me to uh like one 1.2 million page views yeah this is based on that story because it was shared so many times because obviously like we were in the beginning stages of the pandemic 
that people thought like, oh, this person brought coronavirus to our area based off these dead birds. So it was literally like, it just was the craziest thing. And the story would never die because obviously like people just bring it back up. I'm like, this story would never go away. But that was one of the craziest stories that I've covered. Um, just based off somebody bringing dead birds to the area. And <laughs> yeah. Trying to feed into their pet. Yeah. Um, so yeah. When, when you, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. Uh, when you are given sort of a story to work on, um, you know, what are some of the key steps that you take as you're sort of wrapping your head around it? And how long do you normally have to work on a story before you have to sort of turn it in and publish it? Uh, usually, like, when I find the story, when I pitch the story, I already know that, like, it will it will do well, like, it would, you know, be able to turn, is what they say, will be able to, like, accomplish it mm-hmm. for the day. So, usually, I would have, like, if I work at 11, we have the editorial meeting at 11.30, I would pitch my story. Uh, I would say at least, like, 12, I would have, like, maybe a couple hours, so maybe, like, four to five hours to work on the story, mm-hmm. um, gather all my multimedia elements, um, whether if I'm doing like something for on air that day, I would have to like meet slot or meet deadline. Um, but if I'm just doing something for digital, I just have to have it finished by the end of the day. So basically they're like day turns that I'm doing. I have done some projects to where I've done a, like, you know, maybe have like two or three days to execute or have like a couple weeks, mm-hmm. but mainly a lot of stuff that I do is, uh, or their day turns. So what is, so do you have a, like a framework or, um, and I know earlier you mentioned that you had a rhythm for, sort of taking digital and, and figuring out how it would work on TV. But do you have sort of a framework or, you know, a checklist that you're sort of mentally checking off as you're working on something so that it meets, you know, whatever your standard is that it has to pass for it to be good? Yeah. Um, so I usually know, like, if I'm interviewing somebody um, and – you know, if the interview doesn't go well, I know that, like, okay, like, I need to find another story or another angle, but usually, like, if I'm, like, finding and doing my research beforehand, I know that, like, the story will turn out well, and I'm able to, like, gather those elements. If I'm doing an interview, I would, like, make different, like, time codes, like, oh, like, Jay said this at, you know, 11 minutes in an interview and used that sign by, so I'm already, like, putting together like picking out the quotes and stuff that I want while mm-hmm. doing an interview, so that way it's easier for me to go back and I will have to transcribe yeah. as much as I'm able to go back and, like, figure out I want to do this I want to put this in and kind of shape it and I already know like I like look at different like if I'm doing like a nationalist story like this story I'm able to kind of look at different the different ways that people have told the story already but if I'm doing something that's like fresh off I kind of already know like how I want to frame it based off the initial interview doing the research and already like putting it together so before doing the first interview I'm already like putting pieces together for the puzzle and that way the interview just like solidifies and fills in the gaps and I just have to tighten it up mm-hmm. once everything is complete. Yeah so uh, going kind of to the the writing side um, how would you characterize your writing style and uh, how did you find out how did you was there a moment where you're like oh this is what my writing voice is was there a moment where you were like I got it now? Um, I would say I've always been the type of person that, you know, they say write as you talk or write like you talk. Um, I've always been more of a conversational writer and not like a, you know, detectives are looking for, like this person, that I've always been like a more conversational and more like feature style type of person mm-hmm. when it comes to writing. So kind of having, if I'm doing like a hard news story, obviously like you just want to get like straight to the point, like, you know, get to the facts. But if it's something that like, if I'm doing like a creative story or something that like is of, 
you know, importance, but you kind of want to have that human interest angle to it. I'm able to kind of tie, like, introduce the person, you know, tell them, like, oh, you know, Jay grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. He's doing this in Atlanta, and he, da, 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 he's always had this passion for XYZ, and I'm able to tie in the person to the actual story, mm-hmm. which is something that, like, a lot of journalists nowadays, I would say that, like, they get it, but at first it was kind of like, why are they doing this? Like, this is so dumb. Um, because you want the person that you want the viewer or the reader to relate to the story, so you have to relate it back to them. So I was trying to make, like, put a character in their shoes and kind of tie the ropes together. Right. So, what are some of the common mistakes that you see uh, junior people making when they when they first start out as a reporter? Mm, I would say not not being more conversational with their writing. Um, they're you know obviously using different adjectives and they're using like past tense when it comes to certain things and they're not doing like present tense and you know present voice instead of like passive voice so they're using more of like oh this had already happened or blah, 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 but like it's currently still happening mm-hmm. but it's just you know you have to find that different writing style and I feel like it all goes back to the foundations of like writing for tv writing for digital writing for print writing for magazine the different writing styles you have to kind of be more conversational on all of them in order to tell the story. Yeah. Okay. And then um, who are some of your favorite journalists? Uh, my hands down favorite, favorite journalist, um, Lester Holt, um, mm-hmm. NBC Nightly News. Um, he has like, obviously that, you know, I would want him to like narrate anything that <laughs> yeah. I do. You know, like coming up next, like this is the very, just like that tone. Yeah. Um, also, like one of the like I guess a journalist who's some, like she's around my age. She's on ABC, um, ABC News. Monica Sar Abdi. Okay. Um, this is the way that like she delivers the news. Like it can literally, it's she knows how to adapt to different writing style, like different like I guess things that are happening. Mm-hmm. So this something that's more like a serious news story. It's you know like oh you know five people were shot, two people were dead, like that type of incident. So she knows how to like deliver it. She knows how to deliver the news in different settings um and it's also you know very good because not everybody has that skill to still have their actual voice when telling they don't have like a fake reporter voice yeah they have you know they're able to tell the story in their same voice um one of my mentors i call her my uh at my last station i'll call her my uh fairy godmother <laughs> uh kelly lynn she's a good i feel like she's she's a good storyteller she she's also she's a mother you know i want to say not in real life obviously just where she's not acting but she's a mother off camera mm-hmm. um and so like the way that she delivers news is like in a very calming way so she could literally be like your house is on fire right now and i'll be like thank you kelly like I, <laughs> I will call the fire department and you know it's very calm versus like your house is on fire it's not like panicking it's yeah. very calm it's like you know you know you gotta file your taxes soon you know it's almost july 15th you know it's very calming and it's like okay I can actually watch the news versus somebody screaming and being in like a deep voice that kind of just makes me not want to watch the news to be honest. Fair enough. Fair enough. So where where do you go next? Have you worked out sort of you know what your ideal position is you know what your ideal place to work is like what, what's next for you? You know I'm still trying to figure that out. I told myself I was like I, if I don't meet network news in the next two years I'm just gonna like freak it I'm leaving the industry but you know everything happens for a reason. God puts you in different places um, and puts you in different experiences and it's really up to his timeline and not our timelines. You can really have this fancy timeline I want to do this by this day and I want to do that by that day. 
which is really up to him. If he says, you know what, you're not ready for network news yet, I'm gonna give you another year or so to have different experiences and I can kind of shape me how I want to, you know, tell stories and like, you know, where I want to go next. But I mean, obviously like I would, it's every journalist job to end up at network news. Yeah. Uh, some people still want to stay in local, but I mean, you know, the majority want to end up at either an ABC, a CNN, a CBS, a Fox, an ABC. Um, obviously my dream companies to work for would be NBC or ABC. Um, it's just about getting there at the right place at the right time. Yeah, awesome. Well, uh, I'm going to pivot a little bit and, and sort of talk about some of the questions that I asked you uh, before this podcast. And so basically before every episode, I ask, uh, you know, guests what they're reading, um, a challenge they're facing, something that they're proud of, and a piece of advice that they would give to people who listen to their episode. Jonathan, do you remember your answers? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, so what are you reading right now? Uh, so I'm reading, I'm actually rereading this story. It's uh, or reading this book, it's Estado. So I read it in one of my, actually two of my African-American studies classes at undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the autobiography of Asada Shakur, which uh, she, for those who have not heard of Asada, um, she is the woman who allegedly um, killed a New Jersey state trooper on the Jersey Turnpike back in the 60s, ended up going to jail, um, long story short, too long, didn't read, fled jails, now in Cuba under political asylum, and it's been there ever since like 1980-something. Um, and so it's an interesting book because she tells about a lot of the stuff that she talked about, like, you know, that happened in the 60s and the 70s and 80s is still happening today, obviously. We're in the middle of, you know, a race war. Um, so a lot of the stuff she talked about that is happening, uh, it's really coming about full circle or really coming about full circles because it's still it's an ongoing issue. So that's something that I've like reread. I was like, you know what? I feel like I need to read Asada. And that was like one of my favorite books within the African-American studies, like my AFM courses, um, because I feel like I just related to it. Oh, I related to a lot of her, not like a lot of her experiences, but a lot of her experiences that she had, you can kind of pinpoint and like filter it down to something that's happened in your life. And not that many people can, I mean, majority of black people can probably relate to it, but not many people can say like, oh, like I've had to overcome this, I had to do that. So I feel like it's still a relevant book um, throughout this time. Yeah. So uh, what is a challenge that you're currently facing? Uh, a challenge that I'm currently facing is uh, being a black journalist in, the, in a world where journalists and black men are constantly being attacked, obviously, as a, as a journalist you know, we have the odds stacked against us as a Black journalist. I have the odds stacked against me, you know, when telling stories. Obviously, as a Black man, you know, you can relate to this. Obviously, like, we fear for our safety because if a police officer were just to stop us, we don't know if, we, or if we're the next, the next hashtag. Yeah. So I feel like we're, I'm living in a world where the odds are against me in multiple aspects of my life. So how are you, how are you sort of coping with that? Um... And I, I'm, I'm just curious about that because you mentioned that like I, I'm dealing, I'm not dealing with it from the perspective of a black journalist, but you know, I got pulled over, what was it, two weeks ago? And I, I have never gripped the steering wheel so hard in my life. I did not want to move my hands because I didn't know, you know, what cop was going to walk up to my window and tap on the window and tell me to roll the window down. So right. yeah, how are you sort of, you know, coping with this really sort of existential, you know, really crisis, honestly. Uh, therapy, honestly. <laughs> um, uh, I tell people, I tell people all the time, I was like, you know, you should never, 
be too black to go to therapy like therapies for everybody it's not for people that have like mental disabilities or mental illnesses you should always like it you should always talk out your problems to somebody that doesn't know you yeah so that way they can give you an insight from like the outside looking in yeah absolutely. so like, i'm always like giving my therapist like bi-weekly I actually have a point with him on friday he's probably like why do you scheduled an appointment with me it's been four weeks but obviously like it's we're in the middle of a pandemic and a race war so i've been i have time to you know get my life together but now it's back together and we're going back to therapy regularly but um, i will say therapy is um a key that everybody should tap into no absolutely so uh sort of (laughs) on the flip side now we had a challenge so what's something that you're uh you know really proud of right now Ooh, uh, working in a top market, um, that's like being a young journalist. Uh, usually people in industry don't make it to DC until about like maybe they are like four, third, fourth station or if they go to network. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm very fortunate and very blessed to have DC as my first stop in my journalism career. Um, that way I'm able to, you know, not only put it as like a resume booster, but I'm able to, you know, say that, oh, I've had, you know, these experiences or I'm able to, you know, be such an astonished storyteller that it will take me for the business I'm having this as my first stop in my in my career. Yeah. Um, okay. And what is a piece of advice that you would give to black students listening to this episode who are, you know, you know, maybe they've already graduated, maybe they're, you know, rising seniors, but maybe they graduated and they're looking out and not really seeing any prospects. What is uh, one piece of advice that you would give them? Mm, a delay is not a denial so just because someone says no does not mean that it's not meant for you uh, I tell people all the time like for every no it's just a sign to apply or to work harder so every no every one no that you get apply three more places or apply three or work three times as harder yeah okay and uh, so where can you know people find you online I know uh, we mentioned the other day you're verified now so where, where can uh, where can people <laughs> find you uh facebook twitter instagram um facebook obviously it's jonathan franklin if you could find my like page uh j-o-n-a-t-h-a-n last name franklin by personal or my like page i'm very responsive there um instagram and twitter is basically the same handle that's johnny frank t-h-a-t-s-j-o-n-n-y-f-r-a-n-k um obviously it's you know look for that blue check mark twitter and instagram you know it's me (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. And then one final question, which is, uh, what is a thought or a saying or, you know, something that you've learned that you want to leave people with as the last thing they hear from you on this episode? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, hmm. Do, do, do. Hmm. Last thoughts. Um, no, actually, I'm gonna actually look up a quote because I have like a bunch of sayings that are on my phone. That, oh, you know, I post stuff on post stuff on Instagram, like very inspirational. It can be inspirational, it can be very direct. Yeah, give me some inspiration. Mm, well, I'll leave you with this. I actually posted this not too long ago, so it could be inspirational, or it could be a read, or it can, you know, just I don't know how how you take it. But I feel like now that it, it applies to, you know, what's going on now. Um, this is based off of like you know white people now being more apologetic and now being open about race. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I posted this the other day people are like oh my gosh like you've read me and I'm just like well it's true but it like like I said it applies every day um an apology without change is just manipulation mm. preach so it's basically you know like people can be sorry all day long but if they don't change their actions then it's basically just going to be this ongoing cycle and you should know when to break the cycle so you know you should be able to at spot identify and work with the person so that way you can you know work with their changes but if they just apologize without you know fixing their actions it's just basically manipulation you're never going to get out of it oh that's that's good i might use that too uh, <laughs> <laughs> well uh look man thank you so much um that's a wrap for this episode of pay it forward jonathan you are going to be the first episode uh of pay it forward uh so this is exciting uh, but thank you for joining me um and you know for, hopefully i lived up to the first episode hopefully uh, too, well too everybody much. has to live up to you now so <laughs> uh whoever's listening to this um you know please rate review like subscribe whatever you do the podcast wherever you listen to them um you can find more about jonathan's episode and the podcast in general um at pay it for podcast on social channels um pay it for podcast.com um yeah so again jonathan thank you so much and uh that's it for this episode thank you